Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. All right, guys, this is the second half of our two-part discussion with sommeliers on the versatility of Riesling in a restaurant setting. If you missed the first half, please go and check that out. That conversation featured Dale Ellington and Andres Blanco, who spent years working in Japanese and Mexican restaurants, respectively. Next up, we're talking to Julie Dalton, the head sommelier at Mastro's, a top-tier traditional Texas steakhouse. Before slinging slabs and cabs, Julie worked for Terry Feast, and those years working on the import side helped teach Julie how to sell Riesling to steakhouse guests that might otherwise order Bordeaux or Burgundy varieties. If you want to learn more about the specific wines that Julie and I drank for today's episode, check out the liner notes for today's talk. Uh, This show was produced in partnership with Wines of Germany, and if you want to learn more about German wine regions and varieties, please check out their website. That's www.germanwineusa.com. And without further ado, here's Julie. Julie, thank you for joining us for an episode of By the Glass. It's your day off, right? It is, but you know what? I get to taste some beautiful Riesling and talk about my favorite place in the world for wine. And I mean, there's never a day off when you're talking about wine, but the good news is when you love what you do, it's it never feels like work. So, Or it just okay. feels like you're working all of the time and you're never off the clock. <laughs> that's okay. That's uh, okay. When, when it's wine, maybe it's okay. Um, yeah. Julie, the first thing I want to mention is that you are the self-proclaimed Riesling Fairy. How did you get that nickname? Oh my goodness. This was um, an idea that I had that never came to fruition that was actually inspired by a guy named Stuart Morris, who is a sake specialist out in San Francisco. And I worked for the Mina Group for many years. And when I went to the Pabu uh, restaurant, it's kind of like Cata Robata here, but like, like a higher echelon, if you will. He would walk around in a kimono with this gigantic bottle, like a 720 milliliter bottle of sake, and just had these tiny little glasses and, and would like give people little tastes of sake who were afraid to try sake. And so it was like the little tooth fairy going around, like giving you a little something. And you was he in full geisha garb? Was he like fully decked out? Wow. Stu really busting it out. Yes. That's wild. And, um, and so I, I was like, I want to do the same thing at Mastro's in a steakhouse and find magnums of Riesling and walk around with little, little glasses and offer just, I just call it the sacramental pour, you know, just a little taste of Riesling. I, it's for free. You don't have, you trust me if you want, you don't have to trust me, but just try it. I promise you. A little and, um, yes. Like an amuse bouche. And when, and, and we, and when we were talking about this, we, uh, I was with, uh, Charlie, um, Charlie Berg was on our team at the time and his wife is a seamstress. And he was like, I could get Anastasia to make you a set of wings and you could walk around with a giant bottle. I love of it. And I was like, let's do, I want to be the Riesling fairy. It just, it, sometimes, um, a return on happiness does not supersede a return on investment. And so sometimes ideas like that are squashed, but I really wanted to do it. And I think I would just need more help from suppliers to do that. I wouldn't be able to pay full price for it because essentially we'd be giving it away for free. You know, we know the Deutsches Wine Institute is listening. So guys, wines of Germany, 
let's make this happen. Let's <laughs> let's get Julie her fairy outfit. Let's give her some wings and let her fly. You know, a let big the, bottle has to be fly. a big bottle. I'm trying to think. Do you currently at Mastros have any magnums or jarros of Riesling in stock? Just magnums, Just magnums, at least that I know of. But um, I, I steal June Rodil's term, the baseball bats of Riesling. And I've, I am shocked. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't say I'm shocked, but we are very successful in selling fruity Riesling at, at our steakhouse. And, and especially when you walk across a, a restaurant in a place where a lot of people want to show off and they see big bottles, they're like, oh, I want one of those. And it's that fajita effect. I sold, there was a time when um, there was a big group of the Texans came in and joined us for dinner. And one of them liked Riesling. And I said, you know, there are 12 of you here. I guarantee all of you would like it. And I have a big bottle and they were like, no, no, no. And anyway, I brought out, it was a John Hoff, um, a Stritcher Lenschen, I think it was Spätlese in Magnum and they ate it up. They were like so excited. And I got calls the next day. What was that wine? I want, I want that wine again. Um, and they ended up drinking two uh, of the baseball bats of the Estrich Lynchin. We, we love selling big bottles at Mastro's. Yeah, that checks out. You, you described it though, as like selling fruity Riesling. I mean, yes. when, when you think about fruity in relation to Riesling, you're talking about like more floral aromatic examples or wines with like significant residual sugar to them? Like, can you just expand on that real quick? I, I try to avoid using the word sweet because that can be polarizing. That being said, I have worked in two markets now where people are unafraid of saying they want sweet wine. And I embrace that all day long. But if you're trying to convince the Napa cab drinker to explore Riesling and you say fruity, it, it instead of saying sweet, like you, you walk to the table with the tall skinny bottle and people are like, ah, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want a sweet wine. Yeah. Just wait, just try it. And so fruity is my way to sneak in the word sweet without mm. offending anybody. Um, so my word for differentiating dry and sweet styles is fruity and dry. That's fair. That's fair. So for people maybe that aren't familiar with Mastro's, they've got a handful of locations around the country. How many locations now? I think 18 now. Wow. I'm, I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I think, and then I'm we're literally quoting you woodlands. on this. It's a, oh, but, you are. Yeah. That's true. 16, 17, 18. <laughs> uh, there's one going up in the woodlands soon. So that'll be interesting. That'll be fun. Oh. That'll be cool. Well, yeah. So it's a steakhouse and I feel like Texas is known for its steakhouses and you moved to Texas for this particular psalm position, right? I mean, you yep. were living in Maryland before. I was in Baltimore. Another, Baltimore, the land another, of crab. The land of crab and another market that is unafraid to ask for sweet wine. Mm. So you move here and like, did you experience any sort of wine culture shock coming from Baltimore to yes. Houston? The, the latitude, I'll call it the latitude with zeros in Baltimore, even though I was at the four seasons, average bottle price was probably 75 to 125 here at Mastro's average bottle price is probably 150 to 250. So when I say latitude with zeros, just people like what is a reasonable price of wine is that was the main culture shock because all of a sudden I could lead in with offering, you know, a $250 recommendation. Your floor is significantly of, higher. Yes. People are a lot more elastic. And is that true 
obviously with like Napa Cab, like the the sky's the limit. But is that also true when you're dealing with German wine, when you're dealing with Spätburgunder or Riesling or anything like that? Yes, it doesn't really doesn't. I mean, in some cases it matters the price, but I am, I recommend $125 bottles of Riesling all the time. And um, most of our fruitier styles are sub 100, unless of course we're talking Egon Mueller, but I would, and I was just looking last night and most of our, most of our fruitier styles are like in the 95 to 115 range. And it's the drier styles, the grossest of X that are, tend to command higher dollars. And we don't have as many of those because we're not as successful selling those as we are the fruitier styles. Usually we talk people into buying Riesling. There we go. Yeah. Again, uh, we're in a market where people are unafraid to order sweet wine. The good news is we're in a, we work in an environment where Mastro's is very generous with their, um, if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. So therefore I, I have more latitude. I take more risks with my recommendations at Mastro's. I mean, I, where I was before it was like, oh, you know, like try to, you, you have to sell that by the glass and you can't take a loss anywhere. They were much less forgiving on, on, on those kinds of margins. And here at Mastro's, I mean, we, we have such a big list and we're, we encourage people to order outside of their comfort zone. But it so, gives you the opportunity to, to yes. suggest certain things that they might not otherwise seek out on their own. Correct. Which is and, really the whole job of a sommelier, right? That's literally right. what we're paid to do is like help people find something new that they might enjoy, or maybe right. it is get them exactly what they say they want, you know, but I think, you know, a, a really great sommelier is one that genuinely tries to introduce people to something new and different and yes. create a unique experience for them. But stays um, in line with sort of a stylistic parallel with what the guest is looking for, you know? So yeah. Kate, last night, for example, a guest ordered um, a bottle of Moscato, but he continued to look at the wine list. And, and I said, I have your bottle of Moscato on the way. Is, was there something else you were looking at um, that I can have ready for you as well? And he goes, well, what would you recommend? And I said, and we just started talking about Riesling. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like to, so we call that winning the Riesling battle when Riesling is up against Moscato, which happens, it doesn't have to come up against, it's just another suggestion. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Riesling just needs a cool song written about it. You know, I mean, it's, um, are you much just, of a songwriter? Are you I'm not? No, I'm not. I wish I was, I gotta wish work I was. on that. But yeah, it's just, we, and I was thinking, I was talking to the gentleman on my team and last night, and I was like, Am I crazy or do we sell at least one bottle of sweet Riesling a night here at this steakhouse? And they're like, yeah, at least one. And, and it just, every time I see a tall skinny bottle walking through the room, I just, my tail just starts to wag. It just makes me happy because I feel like I am so evangelical about, about this, that if I can convince anyone to give it a try, whether it's on the fruity side, on the dry side, I mean, and so, so for me, if somebody wants a Sauvignon Blanc, Often that's how I'll try to sneak in dry Riesling. So it's uh, it's a fun, I just want people to drink more Riesling, that's all. <laughs> and when it comes to pairing, whether it's sweet Riesling or dry Riesling in the context of a steakhouse, right? Which is mm -hmm. a relatively traditional steakhouse. You can, you can get your dry aged meat, you can get you know bone-in cuts, fillets, ribeyes, New York strip steaks. I'm sure you have a multitude of sides available, right? What works really well with dry Riesling, sweet Riesling, Rieslings from different regions? Where do you tend to go? 
so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up and um, I wanted to ex I wanted to share with you my aha moment for when I discovered that Riesling and steak was such a beautiful combination. It was at a, um, a Society of Wine Educators conference and there there was just a basic food and wine pairing course and it was kind of like six wines and six different sauces. So I put together this very not complicated matrix, but you know I put together a graph. I tasted. And, and there was not much sauce. I tasted every single sauce with every single wine. So I had like 36 different combinations here. And I remember being floored that how beautifully the Riesling went with the veal demi-gloss. And I was, and that was the only one that resembled steak, right? There was like a vinaigrette, there's like a mustard something, there's blah, blah, blah. But the veal demi-gloss had some tarragon in it. I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. How is this? And I just was yeah. shocked and I kept going back to it. And, you know, cause you expect certain Rieslings to go with other things. And I was like, am I crazy? And I was talked to the guy. I was like, am I crazy? Like, and I talked to the guy to the right. Am I crazy? I wasn't crazy. So that inspired me to the next time I ordered a steak to have a bottle of Riesling on the table in addition to what else we ordered. And the Riesling was gone first. The Riesling was finished first. And here's my reason why I think the Riesling is finished first. When you think about a steak house dinner, whether it's dry aged or bone in or marbled throughout or filet and clean, it's a lot of base notes, right? You have butter, you have the caramelization, you know, that, um, you know, just Maillard like, reaction. Yeah. Thank you. That's the word I was yeah. looking for. Maillard reaction, which creates, maybe there's something psychosomatic when I say the word caramelization and I think a little bit sweet, but there's something about that caramelization of meat and protein that makes pairing with fruity styles of Riesling really work. And if you think about the steak on a plate, it's a lot of base notes. It's all your, you know, like boring, like monotone, boring. And then you have the broccoli and then you have the, 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 the potatoes and maybe that's like a tenor and then maybe the, maybe the asparagus is an alto, <laughs> but it's still very low noted. And then you have Riesling come in and all of a sudden you have the soprano, maybe not even a, just a soprano, but you have the an aria and then the other rest of the chorus comes in and all of a sudden you have Vivaldi's four seasons on your plate and you couldn't have something more complete. And, um, and when you think about the German diet um, and this is something that I feel very lucky to have, I mean, I've been to Germany, I've, I've dined with the families and, and seeing how they eat and there's, it's a lot of protein on a plate. It's yeah. a lot of meat on a plate and that, all those low notes, all those salt salinity and protein, all those things are lower notes. No wonder they drink Riesling. No wonder it's worked because that's, that's what completes the meal. That is a true wine and food pairing where a lesson in contrast is what makes the plate complete. Yeah. For people that haven't been to Germany, what are some of those dishes? So all the versts you can think of, right? <laughs> all the, all the different versts from the different colors. So a lot of that is, you know, going to have some saltiness uh, and then lots of vinegars and, you know, with must, the mustard flavorings, they do a lot of be beautiful things with vegetables. I mean, spargel, oh my goodness, asparagus in the month of May, it's just like in Austria, they have an entire menu devoted to spargel. So, I mean, that to me, again, is the alto and, and that still needs 
it still needs something, you know, it's such an earthy vegetable. I know this conversation is predominantly about Riesling, but I'm pretty sure there's a hashtag out there for Sylvaner and Spargel. I'm pretty sure oh, someone has pushed that narrative of, of pairing Sylvaner with asparagus. It, it's I somewhere in the depths that. of the internet. I'll see if I can send it to you, but. I, I, I think I don't disagree that Spargel and Sylvaner would be beautiful together. But no, I just, I, I did want to touch on the different cuts of meat with different styles of, of Riesling. You know, again, talking about the, the Maillard reaction and like, so of course the more char you have, I would want something on the fruitier side. If you have it where it's um, like sous vide first and then just finished, um, sort of semi-sweet I think would be good. For me, the, like if you do like a steak tartare, again, there's gonna be mustard in that dish. Ideally, there's gonna be some richness from the egg and ideally a vinegar. So um, I, and, and depending on those other, if, you're, if your mustard is very spicy, I would want a sweeter style, a fruitier style. If there is, if there's more salinity, like if there's more pickling notes in, in the tartare, I would want something fruitier. So all in, and dry age, back to like the funk and like the blue cheese sort of note of a dry age, I, I like wines that have seen botrytis, whether it's dry or fruity, because the funk of the botrytis, you still get that mushroom and like the funk of the funk of the, of the dry aged is, yeah. is really beautiful. And like, I've had, you know, some drier wines from 06 where it was a botrytis heavy vintage. And even though it's dry, there's that mushroom and delicious earthy component, even in a dry wine that really speaks to dry age for me. So, you know, the role that you have at Mastro's is a very quote unquote traditional sommelier role. I mean, you're going to tables, they've ordered entrees, appetizers, they're ordering a bottle of wine, they're asking for it to get decanted. Increasingly wine service has gone the more casual route. Is that impacting the way in which you make your pairings? You know, some, it depends on the server. Um, and some servers do come forward with that information. For example, last night, they, uh, there was a server who said, Jules, I got two, I got two sushi towers on table 809. Go sell some Riesling. I was like, Wait, I what's on you. a sushi tower? What, what's uh, going on? Just on whatever. There? It's like, I mean, it's like a shellfish tower. You make whatever you want, but we have a, believe it or not, we have a really delicious sushi section. We even do like a, like an A5 roll. Like we'll do like a, like take a blowtorch to some A5 and, and drink that it sounds on good. Some pyrotechnics. I love some, it. It's some little truffle salt. It's really good. Um, and so it's just, it's, we have six or eight different sushi rolls and they just build a tower with it. And, and I, I, he was like, Jules, go sell some Riesling. I got two towers on this table. And I was like, okay, great, let's do it. And they didn't want to, they ended up doing Pinot Noir instead, but at least I, you know, like my, a nice 15% alcohol Russian river Valley Pinot with their, with their sushi. It's great. The other day I I was like, oh, I have a win. I got a win here. And it was a $60 bottle of wine and it was a Riesling, but it was still a win, you know? that it nothing makes me happier. You know, I could sell a thousand dollar Bordeaux and I'm happy to do it and I love to do it. But if I can get Riesling on the table, I don't care what it costs. That to me makes me happier. Now would be a good time for us to talk about the three different wines that we're tasting today. So when I, um, with the Spreitzer family, it's, um, when the first time I went to Germany, when I was working with Terry Thies and Michael Skernick, um, they're the ones that picked me up from the airport Frankfurt, and yeah. yes. And, uh, and I just, you know, hadn't slept well. I think I was 
coming to, I was coming off of a cold or something and they were just so lovely and we just had so much, they were just so welcoming in their home with their family. And um, uh, it's just, when you experience wines like this with the family, it helps you tell the story better. And sometimes when we tell stories, the stories, I don't wanna say they're regurgitated from a book, but often they are. If you haven't actually seen the hillsides, put your hands in the dirt, played hide and seek with the winemaker's child, things like that really solidify the bond you have with, with the wine. And um, the Spritzer family is one of those. And honestly, I, I can't even tell you how long they've been around. Um, but all I can tell you is when I tasted this wine with, um, with Andy, when he was showing it probably two years ago now, maybe it was three years ago, regardless, it just was a wine that was just so electric for me. It's so it is a trocken style of wine, um, dry. So if you see trocken on the label, that means it's dry. Also, when you're in a store and you're like, how do I know if a wine is dry or fruity? And maybe trocken isn't on the label. Maybe GG isn't on the label. All you have to do is look at the alcohol content. If it's the closer to 12 it is or over 12 it is, it's going to be dry. So in this particular instance, we are looking at a 12.5. And so it is truly dry. I always like to get that information out there because it's something that we take for granted that we know, but it, to, to most consumers, they see all these tall skinny bottles and they don't know which is dry or sweet. So Dozberg, the vineyard is, I mean, it's not a very steep vineyard as most of the vineyards in the Rheingau are not. Um, you're looking at like up to maybe 90 uh, uh, meters in elevation and it goes right up to the Rhine. It's like oceanfront property to the, to the <laughs> Rhine River. For me, Riesling always has an element of all the four fruits. You have tropical, you have citrus, you have pit, and you have apple. So in terms of these three regions, it's just which citrus is it? Which apple is it? How juicy is that peach? And for me, if we're gonna start with Rheingau, to me, the citrus is always orange. The peach is like a little bit underripe um, and it's more of the pit, even in the fruity styles. Um, the apple is less green, whereas Mosul, it's green for me. Um, so it's more like yellow, maybe like a pink lady, like a pink lady apple. Yeah. And the tropical is less pineapple. Like for me, Mosul is pineapple. Um, for me, the tropical with uh, Rheingau is almost more plantain, almost more banana and plantain. So it's a little bit more of a starchy tropical fruit. And of course with Riesling, you can't, especially German Riesling, you can't not discuss earth. And with um, Rheingau Riesling, for me, it's, there's more quartzite, it's less, it's less slate. Um, but for me, it's more rock dust. In, whereas Mosul, it's more like water coming off of rocks. Is that like um, a textural thing on the palate for you or for like? For me, it is. Yes. It's, and that's one thing about back to the food and wine pairing, although Riesling doesn't have tannin, it has a lot of something called dry extract, which can behave like tannin on the palate. And a lot of times you miss that dry extract because of the residual sugar in the wine or the acidity in the wine, all of those work together. You don't yeah, notice Yeah, for the listeners tannin. that maybe aren't familiar with the concept of dry extracts, like, can you just expand on that a little bit? 
Pretend you're eating an iceberg lettuce leaf. Get that feeling on your palate. Now you're eating a spinach leaf and imagine what that feels like. So both of these are raw. It's, I mean, you can describe tannin the same way, but with tannin, it's more bitter. Mm -hmm. Like what I just described is more of a, like a, a film on your palate. So with it's almost the iceberg, a density. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a yeah. weight. Um, but it's like a, it's a lightweight. It's like a dusty weight. And the reality of what dry extract truly is from a definition, if you were to boil a bottle of wine and let it completely evaporate, that film that's left in your pan is the dry extract and it is measured in weight. With Riesling, there's a lot of dry extract. There's a lot of like film left over in yeah. that pot because there's just so much stuffing in there. And um, I, I'll never forget when we were tasting the 2010s when I was working with Terry and 2010s were known for crazy high, like almost too high acid where a lot of producers had to deacidify. But also you had crazy high acid, but crazy high dry extract. I remember tasting with the Merkelbach brothers and they were giving us the, the, their, their stats and like they would, before they would rattle off the dry extract, they'd be like, you ready for this? 320 grams of dry extract. It was, I mean, not, I don't remember the exact yeah, yeah. measurement, but it was high. It was like the highest they'd ever seen. Turn and it all the way up old. to 11. Yeah. Yes. So the dry extract, it's just like, it's like a feeling of like, cleanliness it's like a it's like a grippiness that's not tannin but it whatever it is it makes you feel like you've just sucked on a rock or something yeah so how does that play a role with pairings like where, where do you go more marbling because mm. that behaves like tannin there we go yeah and simply yeah and then and then what get them cool that ribeye or you guys don't yes. do prime rib right no no. no, but yeah, ribeye would be, I would choose something from a vintage that I know had high levels of dry extract because botrytis leaves a lot of dry extract too. So mm. um, again, even though you have that richness with the steak, I mean, and that caramelizes too. Like, you know, we think about bacon, right? Like, yeah. like that's just like fried fat and it's salty and like rich. And like, I can think of nothing more delicious sounding than a big a, old slab of bacon then then a sweet yeah. riesling because again you have all the every single taste bud on your palate has been invited to the dance there's nobody left in the corner you know waiting for somebody to ask you know you've got salty you've got sweet you've got you know umami even with the with the meat and all of these things you've got all of everybody your mouth is happy everybody has been invited to the party Lollapalooza in my mouth I love it yes. this is great so we were talking about Andy Spritzer who I know yes. you've spent time with and you actually yes. helped this gentleman this German winemaker find a pair of cowboy boots when he came to Houston right well you know they he and and Andreas Whitval um in the faults they just always just grab Texas by the horns I was like you guys need a pair of boots you've got the hat you know you just time yeah. for boots and they're like yes let's go get cowboy boots and um you know it might have been an alcohol and a Riesling induced decision but you know we we took an uber to a, a cowboy boot store just west of of where we were we were at Goodnight Charlie's at the time and it was a completely spontaneous moment 
we walked in, they got some bourbon and they walked out with a bot with the, with some cowboy boots. I love the idea yeah. of them walking through their vineyards in their Lucchese boots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. They're just such good people. And like when I was there, um, the first time, you know, Angie at the time was driving this Jeep and the, the doors were off and we're like driving around the vineyards and it just, it, it was just such a, just a really great, it's just such a great experience. He's just full of energy and, and adventure and just really, really, really good human. He makes that really delicious 303. Yes, um, the 303. So he and I have a deal that if I run a marathon in three hours and three minutes, they'll give me a case of the 303. So I think you deserve to have, if you can run a marathon in 303, you deserve to have like O2 Chris on the front of the bottle, like not even, yeah. not just the case there of the we wine. Go. But that would be fun. So the next wine that we're going to taste is Donhoff, which I know you said is a producer yes. that you're familiar with as well. We're, we're moving into a slightly fruitier style. We're moving from Rheingau into Nahe. And Nahe for me is always a complicated region to talk about because it is kind of diverse. It's a warm area. It's very sunny. I don't know. For me, it's defined by producer, not necessarily by region. Like it's hard to speak definitively about the region as a whole. No, I think, um, well, stylistically, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It is very much producer specific. And, you know, some producers uh, do both fruity and dry styles. Some do mostly dry. And so I guess for me, if I were to stylistically identify Naha in terms of if I had to, if I was forced to paint broad strokes and we have to do that table side all the time, to me, it's just in between the Mosul and the Rheingau. When I think of Rheingau, even the fruity styles, there's a statuesque regalness to the wines. Um, with the Mosul, even though the acidity is higher and the, um, the residual sugar might be higher, they're very playful, even the GGs, uh, the gross of the dry wines, even the dry wines, they're more playful. Whereas the Rheingau is to me very serious. The Rheingau yeah. wines are very serious. And, and the wines from the Naha, to me, they're just, they're just somewhere in between, you know, like they, you have the playful ones, you have the regal ones. There's a much greater diversity of soil types, which lends itself to different grape varieties. And to your point about it being certainly warmer than, than the other two regions further south. Oberhauser um, Leichtenberg, so this, this vineyard, um, Oberhauser means um, above the houses. So this is, of all the three wines we're tasting, it's the highest elevation at about 400 meters. It looks out over the houses. And so I think even though this wine is cabinet, it feels a little bit more taut than other cabinets I've had. There's, some, I don't know if it's something psychosomatic because I know it's higher in elevation that, you know, you know that the skins are a little thicker and there's less, there's less moisture in the soil. There's also um, the, I don't know. this wine's under screw cap, right? Of the three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other two are under cork. Um, Fair enough. So that could contribute. Um, I did open it about an hour ago. So I don't know if it had a yeah. slight petillance to it when you, when you cracked it open. A, a touch, a yeah. touch now it's, now it's a little bit um, more reserved, but, but that acidity just goes whoosh right yeah. through. It's like, I mean, I'm not a surfer, but I can only imagine like, but, but you, you mentioned, you know, having worked with a lot of these wines that we're tasting today, whether it's Donhoff or Spritzer, like 
through your work as a supplier. And I'm curious, having been on that side of the wine world and now working as a sommelier, like how does that really inform the way in which you engage with guests table side? You talked a lot about those personal experiences. Is that really the way it comes out? It is because at the end of the day, Chris, we're just storytellers, you know, and we're language decipherers. So if, if somebody says three words, I can pretty much get a a sense of what they want to drink. If, if they put, if they put the ball in my court, if they give me, I like to play this game, three words, three words of wines you're looking for. And I can, you know, casually decipher a budget. Um, What I like to do if they say, okay, this is where we want to be. This is what I generally like. Then I go to the table with three wines. This is my favorite game to play. I go to the table with three wines and I tell three stories and I make them decide at the end of the day, which story they like best. And this is, that's my favorite game to play. If I get to play it once a night, that makes me happy. Working on that side has given me a greater appreciation of a lot of things. First of all, how important the story is and how much more authentic the story is if you have touched the soil, if you have looked with your own eyes at the ridiculousness of the steep slopes of the Mosul. I mean, I remember driving, I literally had to pull over because I was driving, looking, and I realized (laughs) I was being, not being smart. I had to pull over and I just looked and I, I felt like I was at church. I had to get on my knees and I was like, holy cow, vines are growing on that. Somebody has to plant those and harvest those. That's somebody, that's somebody's job. And yeah. that, it makes you appreciate the wine so much more. And you can't yeah. say that about a lot of other wine regions. And so it comes across more authentically. And so I'm able to sell that. But it, again, at the end of the day, if I have a gateway of, somebody wanting fruity wine, it is easy to come in and, 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 and tell those stories. I mean, I sound like a robot uh, sometimes when I'm regurgitating books of places I haven't been. Um, I try to sexy it up as much as possible based on how the wine tastes. And you can do that with how the wine tastes, but when you've actually been there, you can make the story more about the, the people. And people buy wine from people. People buy things from people. And that's at the end of the day, when you can touch someone's heart with a connection, with a relationship in some way, shape or form, well, that's what makes people comfortable with spending their money. You know, we do that with wines from all over, all over the world, but there's, there's something when I get to tell the story of wines, of German Riesling, it, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, that look on people's like, I'm not a dog person because I'm allergic to them, but when people who are dog people, when they pet a dog, like the look on their face changes, you know, the smile is different. Like the smile that an animal or your pet evokes is different than a smile of something else. And the same thing happens to me on the floor when all of a sudden I'm talking about German Riesling, like people just know, like, they're just like, wow. (laughs) You know, like you just, you just have your face changes, your tone changes. And and I think, and I'm very lucky that I've had, I, I was able to have that year working with Terry and gain those experiences. It's made me such a better sommelier because I know the supplier side too. It makes me a better buyer, a more respectful buyer, at least, you know, commit to your DIs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you buy something um, on presale, you better take it. You better take it. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I learned so much from that experience, but at the end of the day, like going to visiting these wineries has affected me in a way that is different than other places of the world. There's when you're standing on the top of those, on the top of those hills, looking out over the, the rivers that help make these microclimates for these grapes to grow in these marginalized regions. I mean, it's just, it touches you in a way that I, I don't think any other region does. Maybe we can um, finish out with the last wine of the bunch, which is sure. the JJ Prune Woods. And it was one of the first appointments I had when I visited Germany back in 2018, was going to the Mosul. And similar to you having that experience of seeing these insanely steep vineyards, this is the Grocker Himmelreich, so the Himmelreich Vineyard in the town of Grock. And such a juicy, fruity wine, uh, to use your word, fruity. And you had mentioned that you decanted this about an hour ago. So typically... Yes. Do you decant your Riesling at the restaurant? How do you make that decision when someone orders a bottle of Riesling? If it's prune, I always decant it, no matter the vintage. Um, if it's young, I decant it. If it's under screw cap, I decant it. A, because I think it's right for the wine. And, uh, and if I have convinced somebody to drink Riesling and they're used to drinking something else with less sulfur, um, then I don't want that sulfur to be an element in the wine where the guest is like, huh, what's going on here? Because we might like sulfur, but uh, a guest who is unfamiliar with sulfur or under, may not know that they, that's an element that they, not like, that they may not like. And also it's unusual to decant a white wine. And so I like that added step makes them feel special and it, and it makes them feel that they are choosing a wine that's more special and that somebody cares about that wine enough to make sure. So it's A, it's right for the wine, but B, I do it because so many people are like, you're decanting a white wine? Well, yes, yeah. So it's, yeah. I like raising that question, letting that guest feel special at the end of Love the day. It. But at, at the end of the day, it's right for the wine, in my opinion. So, um, but prune, I always, I always decant, but yeah, prune. So it was your first aha moment for me. It was the first time I spent money on wine was buying, I bought, it was when 07, the 07s were just released and, and they like commanded all these scores in the press. That's when I cared about that at the time. I was a baby Sam at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the distributors that I was working with closely in, in Maryland had this, you know, uh, I think it was Catherine, uh, Ka Katerina, Katerina, right? Katerina, or yes. And she was there and we tasted through them all. And I was just, I was, it was like catnip. I was like, yes, yes, yes. A case, a case, a case, a case. And yeah. I had never bought six cases of wine for myself. Um, and so, and so every time I move, I find another case of reason that I've forgotten about, you know, because so my funny. intention is to leave it and forget about it because I, I mean, have you ever had old prune? Oh like yeah. When oldest. I visited the winery, they, yeah. they busted out some old prune. It was the game of guess the vintage where it's like, oh, we're going to pour you something. You got to figure out what it is. And you always need to add an extra decade to, to yes. the number. You're like, this might be nineties. And it turns out to be eighties. So I think, see. and that's the beauty of sulfur, you know, I mean, sulfur is your friend. If you want the wine to last a long time, I mean, and you need acid and the sugar helps. I mean, all of those things. It was and, a and 1983 Ausleza. 83 Ausleza. And I bet it didn't taste sweet at all. Did it? Nope. Isn't that funny? So with sweet and fruity styles of Riesling, as it ages, it's like the baby fat goes away. And, um, and it's, it's just amazing how that 
sweet becomes savory over, over time, which I just think that's just what's so cool about Riesling is, I mean, there's so many things cool about Riesling, but mm -hmm. one of the things that I think attracts us wine geeks to it is just its incredible ability to age. Well, Julie, thank Let's you so much. Let's share a bottle of Riesling soon. Let's make it happen, sister. Okay. All right. I love it. Sounds good. Thank you. Nos Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you so much. Of Cheers. Course. Thank you for listening to another episode of By the Glass. You can stream every BTG episode ever recorded on whatever streaming service you'd like, on your Android, on your iPhone, on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, really wherever you want. We're just not on YouTube. And if you want to learn more about this episode's sponsor, Wines of Germany, you can check out their Instagram account at GermanWineUSA. Uh, keep drinking wine, keep drinking German wine, and we will see you with another episode ASAP. Thanks again.